Welcome to the CEC report for the 2nd of November 2018. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome Robert. Thanks Elisa. And on today's show, will Australia or Italy set off the everything bubble and global debt bomb? And secondly, how to lift the finance curse? So firstly on today's show, will Australia or Italy set off the everything bubble and global debt bomb? That is the question. But before we get into the nitty gritty of that, uh, we've released today by press release a new flyer for mass distribution across the country, which we need everyone to participate in uh, getting out before this new financial crisis hits, which many are warning of. Um, so, so it's our five point program to... As the first point is Glass-Steagall, which everyone knows, banking separation, it's very crucial that we get that done, it's urgent. But beyond banking separation, what do you do? And as we're going to go through, Elisa, with the, with the indicators of an imminent crisis, people need to take this seriously and start acting on it. And so it goes through all the five points. Banking separation, the need for a national bank that can recapitalise the productive economy, and make sure we, we, we you know, get away from a financial services dominated economy that's essentially become parasitical and have real industry and productivity again. Um, uh, emergency measures like a moratorium on home and farm foreclosures because in a crisis like this, the banks are gonna, out of desperation, to survive the crisis they created, will do what they've always done in these kind of depression type crises and mass foreclose on everybody. And that makes the people pay and suffer for the bank's crimes that can't be allowed to happen. So we need, there's precedence for this in Australian history and American history, etc. We need that. And then we need to think really long term about infrastructure that can transform Australia and cooperation around the world. Because this is a, this is a as we're going to go through mm. as well, this is a global financial crisis. And we need a new global financial architecture and things that can change the way the world functions um, economically. So it's very important to get this around. Um, we'll talk more about the, the Glass-Steagall mobilisation in relation to the Royal Commission, but we want people to start thinking long term about this. So call in, get yourself a copy yeah. of this. You can read it online, but get yourself extra copies that you can distribute. Very crucial. And the urgency is conveyed by some of the developments we'll go through now vis-a-vis -vis the Australian housing bubble, the Italian situation, um, which either of which could blow the global debt bomb and the everything bubble as we'll get to as well. Um, now, regarding the debt bomb, even the IMF admitted in its latest report that global debt has increased 60% since the global financial crisis. Christine Lagarde put that figure at 182 trillion, but others are saying up to 245 trillion worth of global debt. Sometimes they, they, they separate out the, the debt of the financial service, like the banks. Right. But anyway, the whole thing is astronomical compared to what, given that the global financial crisis was a debt crisis, yeah. the fact that it's grown so big Again, is incredible. We've learnt nothing. Now, um, news.com.au had an article on the debt bomb citing Morgan Stanley's risk indicator, which warned that of all G10 countries, Australia, quote, leads the world in dangerous debt. And this could equate to a $700 billion wealth devaluation. Now that's based, Elisa, on pro property prices coming down to 15% off their highs. That's very optimistic. Mm -hmm. So John Adams, the economist, he's saying, look, if, it, if it's like, say, what Ireland experienced in 2008, forget $700 billion deleveraging, more like $5 trillion mm -hmm. for the Australian economy. 
And another news.com.au article on interest-only loans reports that nearly a million interest-only mortgages, somewhere over 900,000 of them, begin expiring this coming January. And that's according to finder.com.au, which say, they say will mean an extra $400 on average per month for mortgage holders. Which is shocking because Finder is the one that they, they do these six monthly surveys. Mm. How much extra a month could you handle before you pushed over the edge? And for, for the last few years, more than 50% of mortgage holders have said we couldn't handle an extra $100 a month. Exactly. Well, $400 is going to be um, terrible. And, you know, nearly a million households are mortgage stressed. Um, so Graham Cook from finder.com said there are lots of perfect storms brewing in the housing market at the moment. Um, now, in addition to that backdrop of the housing bubble here, we want to take a quick look now at the everything bubble, which begins with the stock market bubble, but then other adjuncts to that as well. And this video is from Clarity Financial's Jesse Colombo, and he actually coined the term the everything bubble. So we'll just roll that. Well, just, just before we start, this is, this is about the United States in particular. So we're, we're talking about Australia and Italy today, but the, the centrepiece of the everything bubble in the United States is the stock market mm -hmm. and the corporate debt that has been generated to push up the stock market. So he's going to go through that. But then the part that we don't play, um, people can go watch his video, is he points out, look, um, even if uh, something in the US doesn't bring this down, something happening outside the United States, which is what we're talking about, mm. might bring this down. So have a look. As you can see from this chart, the U.S. stock market, as measured by the S&P 500, is up over 300% from its Great Recession low in March 2009, and it's also 80% higher than its 2007 peak. Unfortunately, this powerful bull market is not the product of a strong, healthy economy, but of an extremely unhealthy artificial bubble economy that will end in a crisis that will be even worse than we experienced in 2008. Other indices such as the small cap Russell 2000 index and the technology oriented NASDAQ composite index are up even more than the S&P 500 since 2009, nearly 400% and 500% respectively. To keep it simple, America's stock market bubble inflated because interest rates have been at record low levels for a record length of time. As the chart shows, U.S. interest rates of all types, including the Fed funds rate, 10-year Treasury yields, and AAA corporate bond yields have been record low levels for the past decade. Ultra-low interest rates help to create bubbles in the following ways. Because investors can borrow cheaply to speculate in assets, for example, cheap mortgages for property speculation and low margin costs for trading stocks. Also, by making it cheaper to borrow and conduct share buybacks dividend increases, and mergers and acquisitions. Also, by discouraging the holding of cash in the bank versus speculating in riskier asset markets. By encouraging higher rates of inflation, which helps to support assets like stocks and real estate. And by encouraging more borrowing by consumers, businesses, and governments. U.S. monetary policy has been extremely loose since the 2008 financial crisis, and this can be seen in the chart of real or inflation-adjusted interest rates. This is calculated by subtracting the inflation rate from the Fed funds rate. The mid-2000s housing bubble and the current everything bubble both inflated during periods of negative real interest rates. Everything bubble is a term that I've coined to describe a bubble that has been forming in a wide variety of countries, industries, and assets. Low interest rates and low bond yields 
have encouraged corporations to borrow very heavily in the bond market. Total outstanding non-financial U.S. corporate debt surged by over $2.5 trillion, or 40% from its peak in 2008. U.S. corporate debt is now at an all-time high of over 45% of GDP, which is even worse than the levels reached during the dot-com and housing bubbles. The past three corporate debt booms resulted in recessions, which are the gray bars on this chart. This time won't be any different, unfortunately. Corporations have been using their borrowed capital to boost their stock prices via share buybacks, dividend increases, and mergers and acquisitions instead of making the long-term business investments and expansions that were more common in the past. This chart shows how share buybacks and dividends surged after the Great Recession. During a stock market bubble, traders often borrow from their brokers in the form of margin loans and use it to increase their leverage and therefore returns as the market climbs. This strategy works well when the market is going up, but amplifies losses when the market heads back down. Traders tend to use margin most heavily right around the time that the stock market peaks. Margin debt is the yellow line on this chart, and the blue line is the S&P 500. During the dot-com bubble and housing bubble stock market cycles, margin debt reached roughly 2.75% of GDP. In the current stock market bubble, however, Margin debt is nearly 3% of GDP, which is a definite warning sign. Large amounts of outstanding margin debt exacerbate market downturns because traders are often forced to sell their shares to avoid or satisfy margin calls. Later on in the video, Elisa, he talks about how interest rates are the immediate trigger, though, for something bad happening. Because before all the previous crashes that we've experienced in the last two decades, there's been this rise in interest rates. And, and or, or the interest rate uh, rise cycle, he calls it, and we're definitely in one of those again, mm. right? Interest rates start, the, the just reality starts pushing them up and bang, the bubble bursts. Mm. Now, the situation in Italy is serious and it's triggering a lot of discussion right now about a new Eurozone debt crisis like what spark was sparked following the Greek crisis around 2011. Um, now, what's happening is that Italy is in a standoff with the European Union because they're trying to push their budget deficit beyond the allowed limits in order to have anti-poverty programs, keep the pensioners alive. I mean, it's a crisis situation, so they're doing the right thing. Um, but the reaction of the European Union sending a threatening letter to them saying, you cannot do this, set off a run on Italian bonds, spiking yields, uh, whereby the former IMF Deputy Director Desmond Lachlan warned, he said it is hugely systemic and could be Lehman in reverse, meaning if there's a blowout of government debt, meaning government bonds, this could detonate the entire banking system. Now, the real danger is um, the rating agencies are weighing in. Moody's has downgraded Italian government bonds to one notch above junk. Now, if one of the rating agencies only actually moves it down to junk. Most financial institutions worldwide would be forced to actually sell those holdings because they're not allowed to hold sub-investment standard uh, investments. And that would mean hundreds of billions of euros would be at stake in major banks across the world. ABN AMRO warned this would be a major market event. It would drive up yep. yields more and it would cause a credit crunch to the Italian banking sector. Now, there's another factor. If all four ratings agencies downgrade to junk, the ECB, the European Central Bank, then cannot buy Italian bonds because junk uh, assets are not eligible for ECB asset purchase programs. 
Now, two other warnings. The chairman of Societe Generale, Lorenzo Bini Smaghi, said Italy will hit the wall. He said, you can't see the wall yet, but the crash is going to be violent. And he forecast mass selling by investors and a snowball effect, and also said that funds for the real economy will dry up. The other thing that came out was that a Bundesbank official, a head of finance, Carsten Wendorf, has proposed a national solidarity bond in order to save Italy. This would mean that all citizens would have to subscribe to the bonds to the value of some fixed figure, say 20%, which she, uh, he suggested, of their net assets uh, to recover half of Italy's debt. Now, this is along the lines of the bail-in, which Europe already has, which already says that in order for there to be a bailout of a bank, first, uh, certain sub subordinate bonds and yep. also deposits that are above the €100,000 guarantee have to be bailed in and confiscated to save the bank first. And there were other proposals like the IMF in 2013 proposed a one-off 10% capital levy uh, to save the banks. And then last year, the ECB proposed the power to freeze all deposits uh, in order to uh, save the banks for a time as well. So this is quite dramatic. This is all premised on the idea that the public have to pay personally to prop up the banking system, whereas what actually has to do, the European Union as, a, as an entity is a disaster. Every government at, this, at the moment should step in and, and take charge of reorganising their own banking systems because our RMS are completely indebted. And what we haven't mentioned here in this dramatic picture is the derivatives that are sitting on top of all this Right, they're ready to just explode, mm. um, which no one knows the risks that are in them. Uh, it's 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 the it's the, uh, the the scariest part about the whole system, and it's why policies such as Glass Steagall have to be implemented mm. in every country. And the, the the good news about Italy is their right to stare down the European Union. It cannot get away with dictating the response like it did to Greece, which caused a bigger depression than in than in uh, 1929 for the, what the people of Greece have just gone through. Only what, whereas Goldman Sachs, who created Greece's debt, got, got off scot-free, right? Mm. That can't be allowed to happen again. Sovereign governments have to take back their sovereignty and take charge of organising the financial system. And that's why, you know, we need things like international cooperation, as we said in our yep. five-point program. And after the break, we're going to talk a bit about how that reality that you just expressed came through in many of the submissions to the Royal Commission following their interim report. Welcome back to the CEC report where we're talking about the imminent detonation of the debt bubble and the everything bubble. Now, in response to the interim report of the Royal Commission, of course, we asked our viewers to put in their submissions and it was an excellent response. Um, more than a thousand that we know of went in and many of them pro-Glass-Steagall. And I want to mention some of the key um, submission some of the prominent individuals who've called for that, which is very significant. And really you see that there's a coalescence of various people from all political walks that are coming together to agree on this solution. Uh, so we had former ANZ director and chairman of Woolworths and the Herald and Weekly Times, John Dalson, saying that, th that simplicity in bank regulation is a very powerful argument and that he believes retail banking and related activities should be separated out from financial services and the rest. You had the digital finance analytics principal Martin North 
saying that the large players are too big to fail and too complex to manage and need to be broken apart. He also warned about um, the systemic consequences of the derivatives held by our Australian banks, which is very important. Dr Wilson Sy, of course, former principal researcher at APRA, said the financial services industry should be structurally separated into traditional commercial banking uh, away from investment banking. And Green Senator Peter Wish Wilson in the Green submission said it is simply too difficult for legislators and regulators to identify and act to prevent all of the opportunities that arise within integrated institutions to do something other than act in the best interests of consumers. The profit motive is simply too strong and structural separation is necessary to curb its worst excesses. So you can't trust them um, to regulate themselves, which has been how yep. it's worked. Every single one of these um, submissions, Elisa, was crucial because the, the, the commissioner will be getting the message from the banks, um, the, the regulators. I mean, APRA made its own submission and it was, and it was garbage. Um, it, it's business as usual. It's like the, the system, the, the current system is trying to weather the storm to go back to business as usual. And he needs to hear from the, he needed to hear from the public and from people like this that, that what the question he raised, is structural change necessary? Emphatically, yes. So he's, that message has been delivered to him. So as we said last week, though, the ball's in his court on that. But we cannot, we, the, what's more important now than whatever he does is the political process, mm -hmm. right? It's not... Even if he came out and recommended full separation, there's no guarantee Parliament will implement it because that's just the history of, of Royal Commissions. There's no guarantee these things get implemented. And we know the most powerful vested interests in Australia, the banks, are going to, make sh are going to do everything they can to make sure it doesn't get implemented, right? Mm. So it's up to us to, to do our job. The good news is, is the, the major parties have never been as weak as they are now. Um, we, we have four, six independents hold the balance of power in the... Uh, House of Representatives, the, the minor parties and crossbenchers hold the balance of power in the Senate. Um, four of the six ind independents in the lower house are declared supporters of banking separation. The majority in the Senate of the crossbenchers voted for banking, uh, bank banking separation motion uh, two weeks ago and a, a government senator, Barry O'Sullivan, crossed the floor. Really crucial. So, so the momentum on our side is big. One of the things we're asking people to do, we put it out in a release um, earlier this week, Start making contact with these crossbenchers mm. to give them positive support, saying, look, you're doing the right thing, and give them the message that you want them to demand the government and the Labor Party come to the party on banking reform, right? They've got to commit to something instead of just um, uh, be sort of standoffish here and, oh, you'll see what we're going to do, right? No, no, no. We know the solution, commit to doing it. And that's mm. the next phase of the process. So get involved in doing mm. that. Go to our media releases page on our website and you'll see the phone contact details and emails, etc. So we'll be right back to discuss next the finance curse. Welcome back to the CEC report. How to lift the finance curse. Now we're referring here to a report by Sheffield Political Economy Research Centre in the UK titled The UK's Finance Curse, Costs and Processes. And this actually shows that between 1995 and 2015, 4.5 trillion pounds was looted from the British economy through the banking system. And I want to start with a quote by a leading expert in tax havens and finance generally, Nicholas Shaxon. Uh, and this was in The Guardian on the 5th of October to explain what this means. 
As Britain's economy has steadily become re-engineered towards serving finance, other parts of the economy have struggled to survive in its shadow, like seedlings starved of light and water under the canopy of a giant, deep-rooted and invasive tree. Generations of leaders from Margaret Thatcher to Tony Blair to Theresa May have believed that the city is the goose that lays Britain's golden eggs to be prioritised, pampered and protected. But the finance curse analysis shows an oversized city to be a different bird, a cuckoo in the nest, crowding out other sectors. By city, he means the city of London, which is the banking centre of the UK and the world, frankly. Yep, and a law unto itself. Uh, and he maps out, Jackson maps out, as does the report, um, firstly, the consequences of the global financial crisis and the impact that had on economic output. And then secondly, the misallocation costs due to banks siphoning money away from mm. productive activities which is the main thing and we'll put up um, on the screen a shot to give you some idea of where the finance is going. A century ago he says 80% of bank lending went to business. Today as you can see from this chart less than 4% goes into manufacturing, 60% of finance goes into other financial activity and another 15% into real estate. Investment rates for the UK in the non-financial economy are the lowest of the entire OECD. And Shaxon points out that dismantling of the Bretton Woods monetary arrangements, which allowed for the massive growth of cross-border finance and speculation, was a major factor in setting this up. Now, I want to give another example um, of how this financialization of the economy works and detracts from the real economy. And that's an example he gives of Trainline, which is a UK um, company that sells tickets for rail trips and the online booking fee they charge is a mere 75p but he shows in this chart on the screen now how this 75p travels up the chain through several owners of train line and various holding companies it then moves offshore to Jer the Jersey Islands and through a whole series of operations then it comes back to London another series of operations then it again moves offshore, ending up in a major US investment firm via the Cayman Islands. And Shaxon calls this an invisible financial superstructure siphoning away wealth. Stunning. And th this is a brilliant report. Um, a lot of it would apply to Australia as well. It's Absolutely. called financialization. There's a term mm. for this financialization. And we have a larger financial services sector relative to our economy than even the mm. UK has. Now, China did a study after the GFC, after 2008, where it identified that one of the major causes of the GSB had been the separation of the, um, or the disassociation of the real economy from finance, which is really what this report yep. proves. But China is not as affected by that. In terms of stock market crises and financial crises, its economy is not buffeted anywhere near as much as the Western economies because it implemented Glass-Steagall laws after it opened up its economy as a buffer between the speculative and real economies. So commercial banks can't trade stocks, they can't trade derivatives, they can't securitise mortgages. They face restrictions on speculative investment or non-productive investment. They are highly regulated and supervised, even with spot checks by their regulators. And they have banks that are committed just to financing industry. They have policy banks, urban credit cooperatives, 60,000 rural credit cooperatives, which is something that we can learn a lot from. It's a major reason for their success. There's a lot of concern about when they talk about the everything bubble about the debt in China. 
But we have to take into account that although there is debt in China, a lot of it is is backed by productive activity mm. that they have prioritised. And so a lot of people may be misreading the situation there. Um, what we do know is in places like Australia and the UK, the debt is a parasitical burden and it's been created by this process. And it is about to blow. So contact us to find out what you can do to get involved. We'll send you some information to get you started. Contact your MPs and thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Lisa. See you next week. Mm.